You're listening to another episode of the Zag. Eric Soap here. Excited to be joined by Fong Long, a 2017 NLC Boston Fellow. Let's catch up with her, see what she's up to. Thanks for listening to this episode. Let's get to it. All right, so we are talking before we started recording. So you're in San Francisco. I'm here in L.A. And for those that haven't been following the news, it's it's uh, weather of smoky. Um, yeah, how long have you been in San Francisco? And, and is this your first experience dealing with this kind of stuff? Definitely. So I just moved to San Francisco this summer. Um, and uh, it's, it's living on the West Coast is new for me. I grew up in the on the East Coast. And was there a draw of a job? Was a draw of just different weather, different coasts? What was the main reason for moving out there? Yeah, so my partner um, is co-founding a company, and so he's out here, and uh, for me, it was an easier move to go because I have my own business, and um, it's a virtual business, and so I could just pick up and, and, head, out here, uh, and head out here without much uh, disruption there. And then what kind of West Coast bias did you have living all those years on the East Coast? <laughs> well, so mostly positive, uh, just people okay. saying that it's chiller <laughs> in terms of the weather, but also the people, um, that people aren't as type A. As they are on the East Coast, yeah. <laughs> and I'm definitely finding that. Um, but it's it's been fun so far. I've really enjoyed it. You know, we did our NLC interviews. Uh, the main interview day was Saturday, and so it always gets me nostalgic and and thinking about how I crossed paths with NLC in 2010. And I was fortunate to to lead a lot of the chapter work uh, between then and in between now. And so that's one of my my favorite days. So I'm always curious talking to folks outside of LA. What was your introduction to NLC, or how did you end up doing it in the first place? Yeah, so NLC was an amazing experience for me. Um, I learned about NLC for the first time after attending a panel workshop um, and presentation um, in Dorchester, Massachusetts. And it was one of the, and I go to a lot of um, just events and it, just to learn about the nonprofit world, just to learn about um, just social issues happening around Massachusetts. And so this was one of the most well-run events I'd ever gone to after living a decade in, in Boston. Hmm. Um, and I started talking to some folks there at some of the organizers and I said, Oh yeah, this is, this is new year's council. This is what we're about. Um, and just everyone was really nice. And what was so, what's really stood out to me is, uh, was the, the focus of the panel. It was about, hmm. um, wealth inequality in Massachusetts. And what I really appreciate was that uh, the people that were presenting were uh, diverse. So there were there were people from different um, industries and professions, and there were women on the panel, and there were women of color on the panel, and and there was a white person on the panel too, right? But like it's usually like when I've gone to events, it's typically like all white people talking. And this was this is in Boston, and Boston is pretty segregated and one of the worst states. And, and sorry, Massachusetts is one of the worst states, and Boston is one of the worst cities in terms of income and wealth inequality in the country. Mm-hmm. And so going to a panel like this, you know, I, I, I always go with high hopes, wanting to learn things, but this really blew me away because the people that were presenting were really talking about the structural issues that I felt um, were lacking in other events I'd gone to or other public education I've gone to in the past. And then on the way home, someone in LSC, and it, it turns out to be the recruitment chair, you know, they, we were actually on the same bus hmm. and he started, he said, and, and we, we continued the conversation and, and he suggests that I apply to NLC. Um, and I, you know, I was really busy at the time. I was doing a lot of things, but, um, you know, I said, oh, maybe not this year, but then Trump got elected. And uh, I said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to apply because like, I just feel like I just want, I just need, I just really want to do something. Because I'd working, I'd been working in the nonprofit world for for a while, and I was a teacher before that. I was a teacher for about seven years, 
And then I made a switch to the nonprofit world and then just started realizing and becoming more disillusioned saying, thinking I want to do more to, to change the structures and change the policies that are really holding people down. Um, and so I applied and I thought, you know what, even if I don't get it, um, that means other really, really good people got it. So as, you know, as long as it, it if they think I'm a good fit, then I'm going to trust them. And I, and I got it. And so I was really, really happy about it. And, um, it was one of the, just, uh, just one of the best things I'd ever done. Yeah. And I, I want to talk about your company in just a second, but I, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk to you about teaching. Cause yeah, I taught for, for many years in Compton, mostly fourth grade. What did, what did you teach and where did you teach? I taught throughout New England. Mm. And so I have a master's in special education Nice. and I worked as a, and, and also I have a certificate in math, um, uh, in elementary at the elementary level. So I taught uh, sixth grade math and special education in a, um, integrated classroom. So I was a co-teacher. Yeah. Um, but I also, in my first three years, I worked as, um, you know, kind of like a pullout setting mm -hmm. like where I had my own resource room and then I would, you know, work with students individually or in small groups. But then I realized I realized that the co-teaching model just worked better for me because I yeah. wanted I realized, you know, just working with all students is is where it is, where it is. Right. It's not just pulling students out who need, quote unquote, help. Um, and also I left teaching because I realized that labeling students with disabilities um, just didn't just didn't really jive with, with where I uh, wanted to be, especially since many of the students that I was working with didn't actually have diagnosable learning disabilities, but mm. they were tend to be poor and students of color. Yeah, and it sounds like it sounds like a lot of your teaching experiences, to some degree, informed what you are doing now. Give folks the, the scoop on what your company is and what you're trying to do. Absolutely. And so, um, after left teaching, I started working in a nonprofit, providing financial coaching and counseling to people living in public housing. I know it sounds like a big jump going from public school teaching to doing financial counseling, but um, I've actually been a personal finance nerd my whole life. And what I loved the most about teaching was, of course, working with the students. Um, I really miss that. But I also realized that I loved working with the adults and, and their parents. And so I would meet with them regularly um, as a special educator. And build, And I was really privileged to have a really uh, small, well, <laughs> relatively small compared to classroom teachers. I would you know, have maybe 20, 30 you know, families that I was tasked with uh, managing the, their, the student uh, special needs cases. And so I would, you know, keep in touch with them. And some families I'd kept in touch with for multiple years when the students were in different grades, because you just want to keep that relationship going. And um, I realized I, I loved working with adults. Um, and so, you know, I, I tried to combine working in financial literacy and financial education uh, with working with adults. And what I loved, especially at working in the nonprofit, was um, my clients just coming in really stressed about their finances and then leaving not so stressed. And, you know, it just felt really good to know that um, they could go home and laugh a little more with their kids or to not be stressed out about a certain thing that was happening in their lives that, it, they, that they didn't have time to handle. And so to me, you know, when, when I hear people now uh, talk about doing financial coaching and counseling, because it, it was a small field then, and this was like seven years ago that I started making the shift from public education to, to financial services. Um, I, I get a little defensive, right? Because it's my, it's my field, but also because I think a lot of people who go into this work, and I definitely started this way too, but but less so because I had the teaching background. They go in thinking, okay, I'm going to go and help people manage their money better, or I'm going to help people make better decisions, or I'm going to help people be more responsible with their money. And that is absolutely not what it's about. Um, it you know I, what I've learned from working in public education working with people living in poverty or even have middle or moderate incomes. Cause 
because it's because don't get me wrong right boston is a very expensive place to live and sometimes i was working with people who have incomes that um would be a, a fine middle class income anywhere else in the country mm-hmm. that's not a metropolitan city or a coastal city um but the, just the cost of living in massage in in boston uh, is just insane for for most working families now and so you know it's 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 about making it's about making making change that can help clear barriers right to build wealth and i say this all the time and i wanted to just when i train nonprofit folks now i say the choices people make are limited to the options people have right the choices are limited and so our jobs is to make sure that we understand what options people have and to expand the option when it's possible within our scope. And I think our I think we have a lot of leeway, right? As voters, as concerned citizens, and also in our positions. And so what I do now, right? So that was a preface, yeah. right, for what I do now. Um, so after working in the nonprofit, um, you know, where I started uh, training and hiring people to, to be financial coaches and counselors and building financial curriculum, um, you know, bringing a lot of my teaching experience to that work. I started my own business about two and a half years ago now, and uh, I provide financial planning to individuals and families. I also continue training organizations that are building financial coaching and counseling programs, and I also consult organizations uh, to organizations and companies on building uh, financial curriculum, but also that are building financial technology. And the reason I think that I can do that at this point is because I have a certified financial planning designation. Mm. And so that qualifies me and has given me the experience to work with people with high incomes and a lot of wealth, because that is what the curriculum is for and traditionally has been for, been for, but also because of my experience working directly with people of low and moderate income, I can work across the income and wealth spectrum. And so in, in a way that that is unique. And I'm also still a personal finance nerd, so I pretty much read every personal finance book that comes out. Yeah, I have a lot of questions. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I have a lot of questions to dig into, and we'll get into those right after this short break. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Sag. All right, I have a lot of questions, so I'll go rapid fire here. You can do some rapid fire answers. So what, what do you feel like is the biggest mistake you see most often people making with their money? The biggest mistake people make i think going really fast right with choices um and and not planning but here's the thing though i don't think it's necessarily a fault of the person i think our society and also the way things are moving all the time with money and how the companies try to treat these choices like it's like about urgency it's about fast choices about quick right and and i think it's really easy to go fast right and to miss things and i think it's also really easy to put things off I think one of the things that is the most important thing to do is to just slow down, write things out and just talk to someone about it, whether or not you're paying them, just talk to a friend, talk to, you know, someone you trust, talk to a mentor um, and just talk through the options, right. Before you actually make the choice, because a lot of choices like going, going for a student loan or going for, um, you know, one, but purchasing a house, just going through the different options and the scenarios ahead of time could save you a lot of money in the and how do you describe the difference to people between money and having it and wealth and having it? Yeah, so it's so it's very different. So to me, um, the, the distinction that I typically say is like income versus wealth, right? So income is are, are things that are flowing into your life, right? There's movement happening. Income is wages. It's public benefits. It's might be um, gifts that people give you, 
Uh, it might be people paying you back, right? Maybe a loan, but it's flowing into your life. There's not a, really a purpose yet. And a lot of it tends to go toward our expenses. So income and expenses. However, wealth is, is, is very different. Wealth is typically stays still, right? Wealth is something that you start building up. It can come in the form of savings. It can be money in your checking account that stays there for, for several months. It can be um, a house. It can be a business. And the thing is, a lot of personal finance education, typical personal finance education, it talks about income, right? What to do with income? What to do with money that's flowing in and out? It doesn't talk about wealth so much. It doesn't talk about, you know, what to do with long-term savings or, um, you know, building a business or looking at stocks and building stocks up, you know, building a stock portfolio or investment portfolio. And what I'm saying like in terms of the personal finance curriculum is because I've looked at a lot of curriculums, right? And But these tend to be written for people of lower income, right? Like it's typically like a workshop here or a workshop there. They don't talk about wealth building. And my theory, and I believe it's, I believe it's accurate, is that a lot of these financial education programs that are geared toward people low income don't talk about the wealth side as much because it's really tricky to talk about wealth without going into our um, super violent and uh, oppressive uh, financial history, right, in the U.S. of who has been allowed to build wealth and who hasn't been allowed to build wealth. That is typically based on uh, gender and race. Um, so I also do that. So a part of the trainings that I do, I talk about um, uh, the racial wealth gap and the racial wealth divide in our country um, and potential solutions for that um, and, and historical barriers and also current barriers uh, to financial wealth for people. So, so I think in understanding the difference between income and wealth on a personal side is really, really important but also understanding income and wealth from a historical societal perspective is also important. And we don't, we don't teach that. We don't teach that in schools. I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask that next. So then as a progressive, let's look at the 2020 Dem field. Do you automatically then gravitate towards the most leftist candidates because they are talking about uh, generational wealth theft. They're talking about reparations. They're talking about making those wrongs right. Is that something that appeals to you or do you feel like there's other policy things you'd put into place to uh, undo the, the the wealth disparities that have been purposely done over the last 400 years? Yeah, I, I, I'm definitely drawn to candidates that talk about um, the structural issues and talk about potential solutions. Um, what I will say, though, is that so many communities, so many activists have already, have already been doing this, right? I, I don't think we could depend on one presidential candidate like making this happen and just snapping their fingers. Um, you know, one of the potential solutions that I hear a lot that I really... Uh, like is, uh, you know, the idea of direct cash transfers and also wealth transfers um, of just moving money. You know, mm -hmm. I've looked at a lot of potential solutions in my work, but at the end of the day, repairing the wrongs that have been done through, uh, through just giving and not giving, right. But, but returning mm. money, returning land is going to be really important to make sure that it's a holistic solution rather than just having ad hoc, random programs that might not reach everybody. And also a lot of the programs that I've seen, right, that try that that say that they'll build wealth still have some kind of debt product attached to it, have still kind like have still um like a gatekeeper mentality to it where like people still have to apply, they still have to um uh fit some kind of criteria to be able to get that program or to stay in that program. And it's it feels very paternalistic to me. Um, and giving people choice and options and freedom to do what they need to do with their money to help them 
you know, do what they need to do for their families and to reach their goals is, is where it is. Um, so giving people options and choice is, I think, the best thing. And I think direct cash and wealth transfer is, is, uh, is part of that solution. But it'll take different forms. And I think it'll happen in different pockets depending on um, the different community that you're in. And then last thing, I feel like there's a lot of alums who are at a point in their life, maybe that you were a couple of years ago, where they're deciding to take something they're passionate about, maybe working on uh, on the side to some degree, and then making it their full-time job, starting their own company, doing something like that. What advice would you give to folks who want to take that leap? Yeah, absolutely. So what I did was I found a mentor um, that built their own company that's similar to one that I wanted to build, and I started working with them. And I you know, uh, started apprenticing with them, so meeting with them regularly uh, every other week, um, talking to them, just seeing them with their clients, seeing how they work, ta- asking them as many questions as I could. And um, I also, and and they were older, right? So I actually also provided social media support. I I revised uh, some of their marketing materials for them. Um, And there was no money exchange, right? It was was truly an apprentice situation where I was providing value to them and they were providing value to me by teaching me. And I just went to as many networking meetings as I could. Not so much that I could meet people that that potentially send me business, but more so so I could understand the discourse of this new field. Right. And what it and how to present myself as a business owner. That was really, really, really hard for me to do. And the biggest shift, I would say, um, not the administrative stuff of starting the business, starting the business. That's, you know, set up your tax ID number, get your business accounts, get your business credit cards, all that. You can do that. That's their online stuff that you can just look up how to do that. But being confident and understanding the vocabulary and norms of your new field takes a lot of time. So do that while you're, um, you know, already have your full time job or while you're in school. Um, or whatever else you're doing, you know, just building that up, just that confidence and uh, that vocabulary that you're going to need to present yourself as a new business owner, start that as soon as you can. That's great advice. Listen, I'm glad we got to connect. Stay safe up there and stay safe, everyone out there listening. Thanks for checking in on this episode of The Zag. You can find all past ones, and there's a lot, 150 now, in all the places you get your podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, Google. They're all there. Check them out. Great conversations. And until next time, we'll catch you soon.